I went to the library, did calculations. How many how many chapters could B&I have someday? And I came up with the number of 10,000. I thought B&I could someday have 10,000. I remember I told a friend of mine that. I said, I think B&I could someday. This is, this is the middle of 1986, so 18 months in. I said, I think B&I someday could have 10,000 chapters. And he said, and, and how many chapters do you have now, Ivan? He said, 30. He said, you have 30 chapters, and you think you can have 10,000? I said, yeah, yeah, I actually, I do. And uh, in 2020, we crossed the 10,000 chapter mark. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. With 10,000 chapters, 13 million referrals, and $21 billion in business, just in the last 12 months, it's safe to say that Ivan Meisner has had worldwide impact. Ivan jumped from law school to a government job to a faithful, unrenewed manufacturing contract that would transform a small consulting network into a global organization. BNI now has different chapters spanning the globe, all working to develop meaningful business relationships through referrals and networking. Now a successful author, blogger, speaker, and businessman, Ivan shares his whirlwind of a journey that started with his mother's gift, a paperweight with the word diplomacy in thick black letters on the top. My name is Ivan Meisner. I'm the founder and chief visionary officer of BNI. Uh, BNI is a referral marketing platform that helps people create referrals for life. I would love to start at the very beginning. Can you tell me about like how you grew up? I was born in Pittsburgh. My family moved to California when I was six years old. We, we moved to South Central LA. So I lived in South Central for uh, about a year. Then we moved to Azusa. So I grew up in Azusa, California, the Azusa area. I had great parents, you know, definitely not wealthy, uh, you know, low middle class, uh, blue collar worker, but, you know, really really good parents. Do you remember like any of that, I guess, like early life lessons from your parents? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, some really good ones. If I have any people skills at all, I got them from my mother. She, she was the one who was the people person. And I got my work ethic from my dad. My mother, when I was 13 years old, I was going to run for student council. And she said, honey, I love you, but you're a bull in a China shop. Uh, you just like knock people over. And she gave me this paperweight and the paperweight, I still have it to this day. The paperweight says diplomacy. Is that the paperweight? This is the paperweight, yeah. Wow. I got this when I was 13. She said, diplomacy is the art of letting someone else have your way. She said, it's about collaboration, not manipulation. But it's about learning how to work with people and guide and coach people into a direction that is you know, viable for everybody. And that was good advice. It's advice that, uh, you know, I, I've had to remind myself of many times throughout my professional career. You know, as a, as a business owner, it's really important to remember to hold the vision and not the obstacles. There will always be obstacles. There always have been obstacles. There always will be obstacles. But it, for those leaders who can hold the vision that they have, they can work through uh, the obstacles. And I think that's what, you know, that technique of diplomacy uh, helps one do that. 
Was there something like that your your parents, I mean, pushed you towards career wise or the something that you tended towards career wise? I mean, you were you you were that people person, but but like going into to college, what were you thinking you wanted to do with your life? Uh, I thought I'd be a lawyer and my bachelor's degree was in political science because I, I was pretty confident I was going to go to law school. I applied to law school. I was accepted to law school and I changed my mind. Why did you change your mind? To this day, I don't know. There was no one thing that had me say, yeah, I'm not going to do it. It was just a feeling. Do you remember the the specifics of that time and like the debate you had maybe with yourself or just what was going on in your life at that point? I got the acceptance letter to a university in Southern California for law school, and I just wasn't excited. And I started asking myself, why, why are you not excited about this? Because this is something that you've been thinking about for six or eight years, you know, high school and, and college. Not the prospect of law school, that didn't bother me too much. But the prospect of practicing law just didn't light me up anymore. I think particularly entrepreneurs, business people, you're either working in your flame or you're working in your wax. And when you're working in your flame, you're on fire, you're excited, you're passionate about what you're doing. People can see that in the way you behave and they can hear that in your voice. When you're working in your wax, it takes all your energy away. You just, it's, you know, it's just something you got to do. Now, mind you, I had no idea what my flame would be then. It's like, this is what I was going to do for years. And now I've decided not to do it. Uh, and I, I really thought long and hard. And instead of going that direction, I decided to stay in college, get a graduate degree in organizational behavior. And um, and so that's what I did. I ended up going to USC for uh, my my master's degree, and then I did my doctoral degree at USC. Just backtracking a little bit, once you were like at USC, were you in your fire and your flame? Because it's like like lawyer is such like a concrete vision of who you will be. Did you feel, I guess, any pressure to find that concrete vision again, or or were you allowing yourself it, for it to be a little bit more nebulous? It was definitely more nebulous, but it was also something where I thought I wanted to be in management or in some leadership role of some kind. And so organizational behavior as a focus, and then in my doctoral degree was organizational behavior and leadership, those were still nebulous, but... That lit my fire. So I thought I would pursue a government career, but pretty quickly realized that I didn't want to work for a bureaucracy. Could you tell me about that government job? Yeah. So I did two things. I worked for the Department of Commerce Bureau of the Census in 1980. I was the field operations manager. I was 24 years old and I supervised 500 people. It was an amazing experience. I learned so much about management and leadership. I got promoted to a larger district. And boy, I just learned so much. And then I went to work for a transportation company that was funded by the government. I worked directly with the president in an executive capacity. But about two weeks into the job, the president of the company said, what do you know about marketing? And I said, I don't know anything about marketing. I haven't had any marketing classes. He said, well, pick up a couple books, start reading. I said, why? He said, well, because I, I walked into the director of marketing's office yesterday and she and the director of marketing services were obviously having an affair. And I walked in on them 
And so I'm going to take over the role of director of marketing and I need you to be the manager of marketing services. That's one way to step in a new role. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, I, now, and so now I'm doing two jobs. I'm 25 years old. I'm doing two jobs. Now I have people who are reporting to me again. And then about two months later, he said, what do you know about purchasing? I said, I know less about purchasing than I do about marketing. And he said, well, pick up a book because effective in about two hours, you are going to be the purchasing agent for the company, as well as the manager of marketing services and the assistant to the president. And so then I had to learn about purchasing and it was, you know, it was trial by fire. I'm, I'm working 50, 60 hours a week and I had just started a doctoral program at USC. But you seem to have this like mental model where it's like, oh, I maybe can learn anything or at least if someone believes in me, I can learn it. So what were your strategies for actually like becoming good and more than adequate in those positions? I think people either get frozen by fear or focused by fear. You know, they're, they're confronted with some situation and they freeze and they can't get out of that. I mean, I've been frozen by fear. But at some point, I had been pretty successful at saying, okay, I can't stay in this place. I can't stay in this mental state. I have to get focused. To me, it was all a learning thing. Are you just picking up books? Like, how are you actually learning? How do you actually go about making sure that you're filling the shoes that need to be filled? Well, look, there's, there's book learning and then there's experiential learning. The book learning I had down pat. That was my field, was organizational behavior. Experiential learning is every bit as important. Let me teach you how to ride a bike by reading a book. It doesn't work. You got to get on the bike and ride. And you pick up things that way that you don't pick up by reading a book. And having, having a mentor, somebody sitting next to you saying, you know, slow down, hit the brake, you, know, you can speed up here or whatever, they're, they're, they're mentoring and coaching you. So it's, it's a combination, I think, of book learning or, and or education and experiential learning. So after you finish your degree, when did you get into like the full private sector? You know, as I was doing the PhD, I went to work for a light manufacturing company as, as the general manager for a short period of time. It was less than a year. I got fed up working for them. I had done some part-time consulting. I decided I wanted to do consulting full-time. And I resigned from the position and um, I was able to get a contract with a computer company to build a sales team. And that was really the launch of my full-time consulting business. And uh, I did that for several years. Was there any fear around just starting your own thing completely on your own? Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, when you go from a, a, a weekly paycheck to basically, you know, you, you got you to gotta eat what you kill for the week. <laughs> you know, you got to go out and, and, and get clients. It's a little scary, but I always thought I could do it. You know, there were a couple of times where I, I was momentarily frozen by fear. Probably the biggest time led to my biggest success. What was the biggest time? Well, the biggest time that I was frozen by fear was when that I had that contract with this computer company and I just assumed that they would renew it because things were building, but I didn't know they were robbing Peter to pay Paul and they were underfunded. So they didn't renew my contract after a year. And the marketing department that I had created was doing better and better and better. But so I thought it would just get renewed. So now I lost about 50% of my income and I had just bought a house and I had a mortgage that felt you know, huge. And I was absolutely frozen by fear momentarily. And that's when I made the decision to start up a little network, which ended up becoming BNI. And the idea was that I would invite my friends, people I knew, 
And I would refer business to them. Hopefully, they would be willing to refer business to me. So I started up this one group. I didn't plan on having multiple chapters of BNI. Just wanted one so I could get my consulting business ramped back up. And BNI ended up kind of taking over my life. So who were the the founding members of that first little little meetup? Yeah, well, in addition to me, there there are still a couple of people that are uh, still in BNI after 38 years. The original founding chapter still exists thousands and thousands of chapters later. So when I started BNI, you know, I'd like to tell you I had this vision of an international organization, but you know, I just wanted some referrals. Someone came to me and said, hey, would you help me open up my own chapter uh, of BNI? Because I, I can't join this chapter because in BNI, you only take one person per professional classification and hers was already taken. I said, no, no, I'm, I don't run a network. I'm, I'm a business consultant. And she said, well, this is kind of consulting. You know, you're helping me build my business. And that's kind of a stretch, but okay, fine. So we opened up the second group. We had a couple dozen people come. Two couldn't join because of a conflict in classification with other people in the room. And both of them said, wow, this is great. I could get a ton of business out of a group like this. Would you help me open up my own group? And I said, no, this isn't what I do. I'm a, I'm a business consultant. And they made the same argument. I said, okay, fine. And, and I opened up those two groups. At the end of a year, I had 20 groups. 20? Yeah. And I wasn't trying. I had 20 groups. A couple of things came to me. First is, you know, every December, end of December, January, I take a week or so off and reflect. Where do I want to be next year? Where do I want to be in five years? As a matter of fact, I, at some point here, I, when I was in my 20s, I wrote my 40-year plan. 40, 40, 40-year plan. That year, I was like, what do I want to do next year, five years from now? How was last year compared to my plan? And that year was like, what the heck happened? Because this, this was not part of my plan, and that's when I realized that I was what I was experiencing was pull marketing. I was being pulled through the marketplace. I wasn't pushing. I was being pulled through, and that we don't teach this in colleges and universities. We don't teach networking, social capital, emotional intelligence in colleges and universities, and people were hungry for it. At the end of 1985, I realized this is going to be a much, much bigger organization than I ever anticipated. And I went to the library, this is back before Monsieur Google, where you could Google anything, right? I went to the library, did calculations, how many how many chapters could BNI have someday? And I came up with the number of 10,000. Wow. I thought BNI could someday have 10,000. I remember I told a friend of mine that, I said, I think BNI could someday, this is, this is the middle of 1986, so 18 months in. I said, I think BNI someday could have 10,000 chapters. And he said, and, and how many chapters do you have now, Ivan? He said, 30. He said, you have 30 chapters and you think you can have 10,000. I said, yeah, yeah, I actually, I do. And uh, in 2020, we crossed the 10,000 chapter mark. Wow. Yeah. We now have 10,900 groups in 76 countries around the world. I mean, that's huge. But it, to go from, to even go from one to 30 is, is a huge feat. What was your plan to do that when you, when you first realized, oh, wow, this could expand to 10,000 groups? How do I actually put in the scaffolding to to make sure that it that it builds responsibly and and with like I guess integrity? I like the term scaffolding. That's that's a great term. The the conversation I was having in my head was you know how do I scale this business? 
And I was able to handle it up to 20 groups. And so it was, that was the point at which I needed to hire other outside people in order to scale the company effectively. BNI now has over 10,000 people. And I no longer want the day-to-day operation. I spent 30 years being the King Arthur, leading the charge. Uh, for the last eight years, I've been the Colonel Sanders, where I'm, I'm the spokesperson for the company. How did you think about expanding? Well, BNI is a franchise and people pay membership dues. And franchises um, and company-owned regions run the area. The, the real question is, how much business are we generating for our members? In the previous 12 months, our members passed each other 13 million referrals. They generated over 21 billion, billion with a B, 21 billion U.S. dollars worth of business for each other through those referrals. Now, just to put that in perspective, there are 77 countries in the world who have a lower gross domestic product than the amount of business our members did. Wow. If BNI were a nation, we would be the 113th largest nation in the world for GDP based on our thank you for close business. That's huge. That's huge. I mean, it's incredible like how much impact that that you've made uh, up to today. But I guess going back to when you were in the library coming up with that business plan, like I'm curious about how you create incentives to have an organization that grows by itself. Very organic. Uh, you know, 99% of our members are brought in by our members. Like how, like, how do you create a framework where that is that is encouraged and even possible? Yeah, well, the key was, um, was the decentralization, uh, you know, empowering uh, local communities to run uh, the operation, the overwhelming majority of money in franchises stays in the local community. It doesn't, um, you know, go to the global headquarters. So, you know, I realized that a smaller piece of a bigger pie was the way to scale the company. And, you know, not keeping the lion's share of the income, uh, but sharing the lion's share of the income locally was the best way to scale the business. So you had this plan. And you're at like, what, 20 to 30 of these different chapters. I wanted out just track a little bit back. I would love to touch on that 40 year plan and how you actually create a plan for yourself that is both robust, but also um, flexible. So my plan was a little, um, a little more general. I, I'll tell you what it was. It was by the decade. So here, here it is in a nutshell. In my 20s, um, those were my learning years. Pay my dues, be prepared to work crazy long hours, be a sponge for learning. And that's where I was when I wrote this. I was at that point. I wanted my 30s to be where I established myself in a career. That uh, I, at, In my 30s, I wanted to pick a professional lane and move forward in that. And this was before I started BNI, so I didn't know what that lane would be. It ended up being BNI, of course. Um, and then in my 40s, I wanted those to be my growth years. I wanted to build a business, create a reputation, uh, continue with lifelong learning, uh, and accelerate the growth of whatever business it was that I decided to do. My 50s, I wanted to be at the top of my game uh, professionally. Uh, hope, hopefully, I, I wanted to build a strategic leadership in business, and I wanted to be working in something that I was really excited about. 
And then in my 60s and beyond, I wanted to be the elder statesman, spend time working in my flame and providing strategic leadership in my business. I'm very happy to say that that's very much the way my life played out. The next big milestone that I'm looking at is like the board of advisors in 89. So like what actually led you up to, to needing that or wanting that? Very soon after I started, B- I mean, a year after I started BNI, I, I set up BNI kind of stupid in a couple of ways and I needed some advice from the members as to how to fix it. What were some of the things that you had to reset? Half of the dues stayed with the chapter for marketing. What I didn't think about was, A, they didn't know how to market. And I had an attorney say to me, I mean, it's not my job to market. I don't, I market BNI. I don't even know where to start. I realized that I had to centralize the marketing efforts and took a loan out on my house and went out and developed a whole bunch of marketing materials, printed it. I showed them the material. And they're like, this is great. This is fantastic. Do you have more? And I'm like, yeah, I got tons. Here it is. Now, in order for us to do this, we have to shift the system where the marketing funds um, now are centralized so that I can do this kind of thing, which means the money will stop staying with the chapter. And I said, I'm, I'm uncomfortable going to the chapters and telling them that. And they said, yeah, you can't do it, we, but we can. Just give us boxes of material so we could take it in and say, here's the new plan. Here's some material. And there won't be a problem. And I was surprised that they were willing to do it, but that's what happened. All 17 of them went to their chapters, boxes of material in hand, said, we're changing the strategy. So they came up with that policy. So using the board, using members to address issues like that uh, ended up being really smart. What were some of like the big wins or losses as you started scaling? One of the problems I've seen over and over, and not just in BNI, but in, in entrepreneurship, is that um, people are constantly, I leave this right here because this question comes up all the time. People are constantly chasing bright, shiny objects. Oh, that's a good idea. Let's try that. And so they, they try to change things too much. So you've got to be a balance. You've got to be willing to be open to new things, but you also don't want to change things constantly. Do six things a thousand times, not a thousand things six times. And I think the biggest mistake that most businesses have is they they just keep bouncing around with new ideas instead of working the ideas that are tried and true. What was the what were the six things that you were focusing on? For any organization, it's it really begins with your KPIs, your key performance indicators. What is it that makes your organization strong? And so for us as an organization, adding chapters, adding members, retaining members, and telling stories. Storytelling is a big part of a KPI. You got to you know, people, they want to know why. People don't care about how until they understand why. And so we, we really try to teach our directors, you got you to explain why. So you got to have stories to explain why this is important and why this works. And then create strategies around those key performance indicators. And don't mess with them. You do them over and over and over and over and over again. Success comes with um, doing the same thing consistently over time. What are some of like the key pieces of technology that you feel like you've worked on. And uh, is nothing new. You know, people think uh, COVID, well, COVID was the largest disruption I've ever experienced in my lifetime, but uh, disruption is nothing new. I believe you will either lead the disruption or you will be disrupted. And I want to lead the disruption. People think, you know, as a networking organization, we're, we're not tech savvy. BNI has been an early adopter in technology, um, you know, including when COVID hit. In 2018, I wrote an article for Entrepreneur. I forget the exact title, but it's basically the future of face-to-face is online. 
I wrote that in 2018. And my organization went wild. They're like, Craig, are you kidding? The old man's losing it. You know, this is an in-person organization. <laughs> and he's talking about this moving online. I was like, the technology is, I mean, look at us. We're in two different places in the country or the world. We're having a conversation online. Um, you know, this technology was unheard of a decade ago, yet uh, it's commonplace now. And people thought I was crazy. Now, I didn't see COVID coming, but I did say moving online is inevitable. If COVID didn't happen, like it would still be inevitable, but COVID just sped everything up. COVID was a force multiplier to uh, the necessity to go online. We transitioned almost 10,000 chapters in early 2020 uh, from uh, weekly meetings in person to weekly meetings online. All, all it was I think we had 9,800 chapters in the beginning of 2020. We transitioned them all to online. What was that transition like for you? Well, we, we held in-person meetings and told the members that we're transitioning to online until until COVID passes. We saved We saved so many businesses during COVID because they were able to continue to do business through referral and do it completely online. And in pivot, here's one of the great examples of pivoting. Two members got together for a one-to-one online, aside from a meeting. Um, one member was a furniture reupholstery shop. Early 2020, uh, masks, we ran out of masks in the U.S. And he said to the person, he said, you have a lot of cloth in your warehouse, don't you? And she said, I literally have tons. He said, have you thought about becoming a COVID uh, mask manufacturing business until, because she had to lay off all her employees, you know, COVID mask manufacturing business until, um, you know, the mask, until, until this, you can hire your people back. She said, I hadn't thought of that. And so she went out and she made 100 masks and gave two to 50 people, many of her BNI members. And she said, one is a gift to you. The other would you please give to a doctor, a nurse, a senior citizen center, somebody who works in a hospital, along with my business card, and tell them if they need more masks, I can do them quickly. She was able, Sam, to hire back every one of her employees. She physically distanced them in the warehouse, and she became a, a COVID mask manufacturing business. She pivoted because of a conversation with another BNI member. And when times are tough, you need your network more than ever because they're there to support you. So where is BNI today? And, and also, like, where are you today? Well, BNI now has 10,900 groups, 76 countries. I'm the Colonel Sanders of BNI. I get to do all the fun stuff like this. This is my flame. I love pouring into people and teaching people because, you know, networking is more about farming. It's about cultivating relationships with other people. And so, you know, I'm constantly trying to get that message out. It's not about selling to people. Nothing wrong with sales, but referrals are different. Referrals are about building relationships with people so that they refer business to you. So I now work, this is my home office. What you're seeing here is my home office in Austin, Texas. I work from home. I love that. So I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm playing the role of the elder statesman, like the 40-year plan I did. Looking back at your whole journey, what advice do you think you would have given your younger self on how to create something that they could do for the next like 30, 40 years? Two things. One, don't worry about making mistakes. You will. It's inevitable. Come, come clean first, then fix the mistake second. And you'll get respect from the people that you work with. Your mistakes are your tuition for success. I want to repeat that. Your mistakes, your failures are your tuition for success. I've paid a lot of tuition 
I've made lots of mistakes. So that's one. Number two is live your values. So you got to get good with what your personal values are. You have to know who you are as a, as a person and what's okay and what are your deal breakers? What's not acceptable behavior? And if you live your value and learn from your mistakes, you're going to be incredibly successful. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki McCullough, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menna. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.